the death of the Son of God. We're preaching from Mark 15, starting in verse 21. Mark shows us that the Old Testament foretold of this event. This event of all events, the death of Lord Jesus. And as we consider this this morning, the evidence is clear that Jesus is the Son of God who came in time to die for sinners. And that's what I want for you to know this morning and I want you to believe this morning. I want you to hear with your ears and See with your eyes of faith the evidence that's laid out before you that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So Mark 15, 21, it says, And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross, and they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Jesus condemned to die. After the Lord was condemned, and after he was scourged, after he was beaten, after they had placed the crown of thorns upon his brow, he was sent to be crucified. But Mark doesn't provide us a lot of the physical, gruesome details of what this means to be crucified. In fact, there's more specifics in the Old Testament prophecies. We read before the, the Sunday school this morning, Psalm 22. And we read where his bones were exposed and his bowels were exposed and, and uh, the torturous um, prophetic words of what Jesus would endure. But here in the Gospels, our attention is pointed really to the theological significance of what happened here, the reason why Jesus came. And that's where the word God would have to put attention. So Jesus crucified the skull, died the gate. Typically, the condemned had to carry the cross or the beam. Um, or one being to the place of execution. And so, for whatever reason, maybe because they had beaten and scourged Jesus before, he set out, maybe because Jesus wasn't going fast enough, I don't know the reason, but the Roman soldiers uh, compelled a man named Simon to come and carry his cross for him. So Jesus didn't make it all the way to Calvary bearing that cross. And Simon who was from North Africa, modern-day Liberia, um, he was compelled by the soldiers. And Mark mentions Alexander and Rufus, so those were people that um, would have known, people would have known who Alexander and Rufus were when Mark wrote this, and they'd say, oh, well, that's Alexander's dad. He was the one that was there, and he witnessed this. Not only did he witness it, but he, he bore the cross um, to Calvary, uh, for the Lord. So here we have a man from North Africa bearing the cross of Jesus. It makes sense because his friends had forsaken him. The Jews had turned against him. The Romans 
were at the task of killing them. Who there would bear the cross? Who there would take it up? Well, this man was compelled into service. One guy I read said, it's one of the great profound paradoxes of Christianity in the fact that the one who was not able to carry his own cross uh, is the one who enables us to carry ours and follow him. Uh, we see here the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not um, some third thing. He was not like a, a demigod that wasn't quite all the way, wasn't quite truly man, but he was truly man. And we see him in his humanity here in his, the weakness of his own flesh. Psalm 22, 16 says, For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Another guy said, Jesus was stripped of his clothes and suffers utter public degradation. Which contrasts the last time we were thinking about the garments of the Lord at the transfiguration. Where there his clothes turned whiter than a fuller could white them. Shining and glorious as we saw the glory of Jesus there on that mount. But now he's stripped of those garments by the soldiers. And there despising the shame that he's about, that he's enduring. Uh, can, uh, degradated, humiliated, he goes to die for sinners. But both, both instances in Mark represent moments of the glory of the Lord Jesus. One, we see his revealed glory on the mount. Here we see the glory of the Son who is going to die for sinners, to go and to take the place of the wicked. Well, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with myrrh, but he refused it. A myrrh, I read, had a medicinal property to it. So they probably offered it to him to dull the pain. So you have a little wine, a little anesthetic, maybe um, kind of uh, to dull the, the immense uh, suffering that Jesus was enduring. You ever had, um, you ever told somebody you were in excruciating pain? And you know, they had to scale at the hospital, the, the smiley face on one and the crying on the other, the one, and they, they say, well, how, what's your pain level? Well, excruciating, that comes from a Latin word, crucifi crucified. That, that word represents the utmost agony and pain and torture. And so as they, crucified him. They offered him this wine to drink mixed with myrrh to, to dull the pain, no doubt. Jesus refused this drink. There at the, the Last Supper, he said that he wouldn't drink of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it new of the kingdom of God. So Jesus chooses scorn rather than glory. He chooses pain rather than ease. And he's going to, and he refuses the cup of, to, to ease the pain. He refuses that cup and chooses instead to drink the cup of suffering that God has given him. 
Remember back in chapter 10, verse 35? James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we desire. He said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of that cup that I drink of? And be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Oh, let us sit on your right hand and on your left. Let us be with you, Lord Jesus. Let us be there in your glory. They were thinking the glory of the transfiguration. Jesus was thinking of the glory that he would endure as the sacrifice for sinners. He said, can you drink of that cup? In Mark 14, 36, he says, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but thou wilt. He refused the cup of wine to dull the pain, but he takes that cup of the wrath of God and he drinks it. At the third hour, they crucified him. They took the hammer and they took the nails, spikes big enough to hold his weight, and they took his hands and nailed them to that that wood, they took his feet and drove those nails through his feet. And they took the Lord Jesus and they lifted him up off the earth. And now he's hanging there. Dying. And then, starting in verse 26, we find the rejection of the Jews. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest in three days. Save thyself. Come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. I don't know why Pilate did it. I don't know his motivation. But he was saying, I think, more than he knew when he put that sign up over the cross that read the King of the Jews. It may have been just to mock Jesus and the Jews. It may have been because the Jews um, tried to force his hand into this, that he was going to put one back on them. But he, he wrote more than he knew because he was the King of the Jews. There he is up on the cross. I just quoted where James and John asked to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus. But now, in the baptism of the judgment that they said that they could endure but could not, they ran and fled. And as Jesus drinks the cup that they said that they could drink, they which they couldn't, 
There's not two disciples at his right and his left hand, but two criminals. The king is despised and rejected by his own people. Numbered among criminals and murderers. And this, another scripture was fulfilled as it says, and this is from Isaiah 53, 12, he was numbered with the transgressors and bare the sins of many and made intercession, intercession for the transgressors. So the Savior, who was counted as a criminal, interceding for criminals. The king who came to save is dying. The king who came to set free was put in bondage. The king who came to deliver his people and set the captives free was bound and brought and now nailed to a cross. Jesus said in Mark 14, 21, that the Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him. And that's exactly what is happening. As it was written of him. It was written what the Son must endure, and he did endure it. When you go through the Gospels, think of all the prophecies that you read of that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John point out that this is according to Scripture, as it was written. Some pretty big ones, the virgin birth, pretty big ones in the, that Jesus was crucified, that he died for sins. Some smaller ones that may seem a little insignificant, but remarkable in that he fulfilled each and every one of them. The evidence is very clear. You cannot take the prophecy of the Old Testament and say, well, somebody's just reading all those things back into it. There are too many. It's too precise. It's too um, impossible for someone to set this up because many of the prophecies of our Lord were outside of his control. As we'll see in here in just a second. That you can't, you can't set it up to make somebody else say and do things. Notice the details of how both the Jews and the Romans were unwittingly fulfilling the prophecies by their own cruelty and hatred of Jesus. By their own wickedness, their own hatred, their own despising of the Lord, they were fulfilling prophecies, um, showing and proving and fulfilling that Jesus was the Lord that they, that they hated. So the disciples weren't even there to sort of influence the situation, right? So the, the chief priests were trying to influence the people to get them to do things. There's nobody on Jesus' side that was there to influence the situation. Psalm 22, 6 and 8 again, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Priests and scribes saying, He trusted in the Lord. Oh, he saved a lot of people. Let him save himself. Then we'll believe. So as Jesus hung there and the weight of his body pulling down on his hands, as he's suffocating, he lifts his body up by pressing down on the nails of his feet so he can breathe. 
as he bleeds and suffers and, and the people come along to mock him and revile him and trouble him even further. Psalm 109.25 says, I became a reproach unto them. When they looked upon me, they shake their heads. Even those onlookers who came back just wagged their heads and shook their heads at him and, and moved on. Fulfilling the prophecies that the people would be that, that the Messiah would be a reproach. They would hate him. Because it says there, all they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads. You destroyed the temple and built it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. You're talking about tearing down the temple. You can't even save yourself. Not knowing that the temple is being torn down before their eyes. The chief priests mocked with the scribes, people that ought to know better, said he saved others, himself he cannot save. I don't know if they knew they were hitting on Psalm 22 or if that was their purpose to to mock the Savior by quoting Scripture. I, I, I don't know. But I do know by saying, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. They, they knew exactly what they were doing. They taunted Jesus to save himself. They taunted him to come down off the cross. The chief priests and the scribes mocked him, saying to the crowd, he saved others and he can't save himself. These wicked men, these scribes and priests who knew the Lord, they knew who he was, they were leading the people not to Christ, but to mock him. The purpose of a priest was to to stand between and to bless the people on behalf of God. The job of the scribes was to know the Scriptures and to teach the Scriptures to the people. Part of their job was to know the the Scriptures. They didn't have nice leather-bound contained Scriptures. They had scrolls and the, the purpose of those people. Their whole job, their whole point of their existence was to know the Scriptures and to bless the people and to teach the people the Scriptures are telling people not to look to Christ to be saved, but say, look at Christ and laugh and mock and reject Him and blaspheme Him and turn away from Him. They called for Jesus to come down to show His power. They called for Him to come down and save Himself. They laughed that he could save others, which he did, but couldn't save himself by coming down. Now they didn't mock him for doing something wrong. They didn't mock him for being bad or doing something evil or making a mistake. They mocked him for healing people. They mocked him from coming to those Demon-possessed individuals. The little kids who were tormented. The boy that would be cast into the fire. The demon that would rend him and, and give him seizures. 
that drove the man mad out into the, to the graveyard. He delivered them and healed them and rescued them. The little girl that was dead and he took her by the hand and raised her from life. The man that was uh, consumed with leprosy healed and make, made clean. The two men that were blind and with his word and uh, with his power healed them that they might see. That's what they laughed at him for. They mocked him for that. Oh, you who come and saved others. You who come and taught in the synagogues the way of the Lord. That's what they laughed at him for. And they said, now save yourself. They mocked him because they were successful in their murderous plot and said, yeah, we got you. And there's nothing you can do about it. Was their mock. Because their view of being saved was not dying on the cross, of course. These religious men were clueless about what Christ had come to do and what Jesus was even now doing. Jesus said in Mark 8, 34, when they had called the people unto him with the disciples, he said to them, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. They didn't understand this. Um, they didn't understand anything about the truth of the gospel. And, and Jesus told his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. You, you save your life and you'll lose it. They said, Jesus, calm down, save your life. Well, if Jesus had come down, which no doubt he had the power to do, he would have stopped short of the mission that he came to fulfill. Jesus saved others physically, but that's what he's doing now is he's saving not only some Jewish people in that region at that time, but all people before and after. He's saving them from their sins. All the, the Old Testament saints who had faith looking for that sacrifice that Savior to come. He's dying for them. And everyone after that, me and you who believe, if He had come down, we'd all have died and gone to hell. This taunt that they're they're taunting him with was was the idea that Jesus wasn't powerful enough to save himself, but this is his last saving action. A sacrifice. And how come you don't save yourself? Because I'm laying down my life for sinners. Jesus came to die a ransom for many. Listen to these uh, two passages from Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3. It says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid him as it were from our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Down in verse number 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the seed, the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He didn't come down to save himself because he was saving us. Then the third section we will look at today is the Son of God revealed. Starting in verse 33. <clears throat> when the sixth hour was come and there was darkness all over the whole land until the ninth hour, in the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama, sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he called Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave them to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come and take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he had so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. So after three hours on the cross, darkness covered the land for another three hours. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which is the opening line of Psalm 22. Jesus is praying the scriptures. He's praying this psalm. And not just, I think, all that goes along with that. Knowing the psalm is about him, he cries out unto God. The man, Christ Jesus, calls out to his Father, God, as mediator, as he's bearing the sins of his people, standing in their stead. This is a, a deep verse, but we, we remember that the Trinity can't be broken. We can't say that the Trinity became two gods for a space of a couple hours and then became three and one yet again. The Trinity cannot be broken. There's only there's one God. Nor was the hypostatic union broken, where there that's just where uh, Christ is one person with two natures, divine nature and human nature, and those two natures were not dissolved. But here in his dying moments, the man Christ Jesus, having drunk the cup and 
been baptized into this suffering and bearing the sin of His people, standing in the place of His people before the, the Father and the chastisement of our peace laid upon Him, when the Lord God saw the travail of His souls, of His soul, rather, the man Christ Jesus knew and sensed and felt the horrors of God's judgment by feeling the true despair of forsakenness. So when the silence was broken, and he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They didn't connect Psalm 22 to what Jesus was saying. But they said, It sounds like he's calling out for Elijah. Hey, I think he cried out for Elijah. We know in the other Gospels he said, I thirst. And they, they came and gave him a sponge full of vinegar on a reed to drink. Not to dull the pain, but maybe to revive him. To, to wake him up. To keep him alive. Because they wouldn't see what would happen. Is Elijah going to come and take him down? Let's see what happens. Well, that's what everybody thought. Everybody was looking for Elijah to come and everybody's looking for the Messiah to come. John the Baptist comes and they say, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Would Elijah come? Well, he already had. In Mark 11, or Mark chapter 9, verse 11 rather, the disciples were thinking along those lines too. Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? So they say, why why are the scribes, the, the Bible scholars, why do they say that Elijah has to come before the Messiah comes? And he answered and told him, Elias verily cometh first and restoreth all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things and be said at naught. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. They're looking for Elijah to come. Jesus said, well, it's true that Elijah will come. He'll come before the, the Lord, and it's true that, that the Son of Man will come, and when the Son of Man comes, he will restore all things, but at first must suffer a great many things. But he said, but Elijah has come, and they did with him whatever they wanted. And what Jesus was talking about was John the Baptist. They were looking for a resurrected or a, a descending Elijah to come from heaven. But John the Baptist was that man, who, that prophet who came in the spirit of Elijah, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he was the forerunner. John was the one that fulfilled that ministry. And Jesus said he already did come. And no one listened to him. And in fact, they killed him. They did whatever they wanted to do with him. And what they wanted to do with him was kill him. He said, the Messiah has come. The Son of Man has come. And they did what they wanted with him too. Oh, will Elijah come? Well, he did come. And they killed him. Will the Messiah come? We, we can't wait for Elijah to come and the Messiah to come. Here comes John the Baptist. They kill him. Here comes the Son. 
and they kill him. Even as Jesus died on the cross, they're still misrepresenting and misunderstanding the Scriptures. Seeing the Son of God before their eyes, they still can't see. So Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. The Lord Jesus is dead. His lifeless body now hangs on that cursed tree. In verse 38, the scene quickly moves. Jesus cries with a loud voice. He gives up the ghost. The scene closes and we make our way back into the city. Back through the outer gates of the temple into the the, the holy place, standing there before the holy place and the veil that covers the holy of holies. And so outside of the city, at Calvary, at Golgotha, where Jesus cries and gives up the ghost, we're, we shift over to the, the same time in the, the temple. The veil was torn from top to bottom. All through the Old Testament, there's a theme that God meets with His people. And that's the desire to be in the presence of God. But God is no longer separated from man behind that veil. But the way to God now is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, temple worship is all over with. Animal sacrifice is all over with. Passover, that's all over with because the Passover lamb has died. The 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 yearly day of atonement, that's all over with. For the lamb died once for all. The types and the shadows and the figures and the, the priesthood and the temple, all those things which were types and shadows and figures never could take away sin. They've all been fulfilled in Christ. That tearing of the veil shows that the way unto the God is no longer there. So that scene ends. And then that fades out and we we fade back in. We come back to Calvary. This time, not looking at, at G, not looking at Jesus, but we see a Roman soldier there that was standing close by, and he saw all this. He was watching all of it, and mysteriously, this Roman centurion who had seen all of it and, and heard all of his discourses and and probably heard the trial and knew all the what the priests were saying, he heard all of this. And yet when he died, that veil was torn, he died. And then then he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. Truly, this man was the Son of God. It wasn't, it was when he died is whenever he said this. After that veil was torn open. Now, one thing I bet you've noticed since we started the Gospel of Mark is a number of times that we've mentioned the Son of Man. 
15 times, the Son of Man, over and over and over. We went back several times to Daniel and mentioned Ezekiel, and we saw the Son of Man. And that's probably what we might have expected. Surely this was the Son of Man. But that's not what the centurion confessed, is it? He said this was the Son of God. Now, do you remember what the theme of this book was? Look there in Mark 1.1, very beginning of the book. What did Mark say that he wanted, what, what his purpose in doing this was? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is writing the good news of Jesus. Not the healer, not the good news of Jesus, the teacher, but the good news of Jesus, the Son of God. So Mark announces it from the very beginning. Then in verse number 11, the Father announces it. There came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we get clued in from the beginning from Mark that Jesus is the Son of God. Then we hear the testimony from heaven as the Father announces, here's the beloved Son of God at the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark 9-7. A voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And then the demons declared it. There were hostile people that announced, that announced this too. But it was, you had the, the, the supernatural um, announcement from God the Father twice. Then twice you have the demons declaring it. In Mark 3, 11, the unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down and cried, Thou art the Son of God. In Mark 5, 7, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God, the most high? The high priest knew it, but they wouldn't say it. Because in Mark 14, they said, Art thou Christ, the Son of the Blessed? So they knew it, but they didn't really pronounce it. But now, at the end of the book, we have a human man openly confessing what Mark said was true from the start. Jesus is the Son of God. So it starts out that, you have it twice in the first chapter, and now at the end, a Roman, not the scribes, not the priests, or not the Pharisees, a Roman soldier, who didn't know anything about what was going on, sees the death of Jesus, and said, Truly, he is the Son of God. Readers in the Old Testament knew what happened when you mess with the ark. Right? You know what happens. If, remember, they were carrying the ark, and the, the oxen shook the cart, and the ark was going to fall, and the guy grabs a hold of it because he didn't want it to fall on the ground, and he died. And then David said, well, just leave it there. We don't want to mess with it. I, I, we can't. We'll just leave it where it sits. They knew what happened when you messed with the ark. They knew that you couldn't go back into Holy of Holies. That's what that veil was for. They knew that the priest could only go in there once a year. That's where God's presence was. And they knew what would happen if anyone looked back behind that veil. You'd die. Because that's where God's presence was. 
you opened that up, you would see God and you would die. Jesus died on the cross. The scene shifts to the veil. The veil is torn in two. What do you think you would expect? After reading all the, if you just sat down and read the whole Old Testament from, from beginning and you get to Mark, and after reading all that stuff in the Old Testament about the ark and the power of the ark and the, the Shekinah glory in the temple and then in, or the tabernacle in the temple, and then that veil was torn in two, what would you expect? Smoke and glory and fire and death. You know what happened? Nothing. It was nothing. The veil was torn and nothing happened. But over at Calvary, in the cold, dead face of Jesus, that centurion cried out, truly, this is the Son of God. That veil was torn open. You no longer look to God in buildings made with hands. Where can you see God? Will you see him in the face of Christ? That's what the centurion saw. And when that veil was opened, it was no longer with the priests and the Jews and the, the temple. It's all done away with. It's been fulfilled in Christ. And so that's why it's mysterious, but that's why it's beautiful that this, this Roman, this Gentile, could look at Jesus and say, there's the Son of God. Right here. Right here. Son of God. Don't you be a centurion about what you heard and say, here's God in the face of Christ. There are several groups of people there at Calvary, all for different reasons. The Jews mocked and derided Jesus. The religious people hated him for the truth. They rejected him as Christ, as King, Messiah, Savior. The ones thought he was a criminal to be executed, and they saw him as insignificant, as nothing. Just another guy who died. One of three guys, one of three Jews who caused trouble and now they're, they're dying for their trouble. What do you think about Jesus this morning? How do you view him? Another historical figure who tragically died at the hands of wicked people? Not if you read what Mark has to say. You can't read Mark and, and say that. You can't read Mark and say, no, he was just another regular guy who died for getting into some trouble with political people. Now you might believe that, but it's not because that's what the Bible says. You would have to say, I don't believe Mark. I don't believe what the Bible says. You would have to say, I don't believe what the scriptures say. I don't believe what the centurion says. I don't believe what um, any of the witnesses say. I don't believe what people have said about Jesus for 2,000 years now, I'm going to ignore all that and I'm going to believe what I want to believe. No, Mark makes it very clear for us who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He is the King. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of men. The only sacrifice for sins. He is the veil Himself. He is the better temple. He is the mediator. He is the propitiation, not the mercy seat, not the ark. He is the ark. He is the mediator. He is the better temple. He is the son of God. 
Now, as that centurion had his eyes open to this reality, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. But I'll tell you now, because Jesus has risen from the dead, it's not that he was the son of God. It is that he is the son of God. And the son of God was lifted up and took the place of sinners there and dying on the cross that all who would look to him and believe would be saved. Even that Roman soldier, who I believe he, he confessed it. He said, truly, I believe he confessed it. Even those who mocked him and derided him, because Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. As he hung with transgressors, and as transgressors mocked him, he prayed for transgressors and told the one, today you'll be with me in paradise. There is what Jesus did on Calvary. To save sinners, wicked sinners, that all who would look to him could have everlasting life. That's what I want you to see this morning. The evidence is clear. Believe upon the Lord Jesus. Believe upon him and be saved. Let me close with John 3. Jesus said, No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We read that the Son of Man was lifted up before us this morning. Jesus doesn't call us to, to do some great works or some great deeds. He calls us, to, like the Israelites of old, to look up to the one that was lifted up for us there on the cross and believe. And our sins will be forgiven. We will have everlasting life.